three rings for the elven kings under the sky, seven for the dwarf lords in halls of stone, nine for mortal men doomed to die, one for the dark lord on his dark throne in the land of Mordor's where the shadows lie, one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all and in the darkness bind them in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. Not something you would hopefully typically hear in a Unitarian Universalist service on a Sunday morning. <laughs> However, I felt it particularly appropriate given that that is what we are up against. And I confess, I'm a devout nerd and disciple of Tolkien's work, and I've always wanted to read that aloud in public. <laughs> now, every few years of late, every few years I have made a spiritual practice of rereading The Lord of the Rings all the way from its introduction to the quite voluminous appendices. And even within the last year, I've started on his, on his cosmological and sort of mythological work that undergirds all of that, the, the Silmarillion. And so as a result of this recurrent practice, this, this ritual almost, um, this, his work has actually come to occupy a central place in my own spiritual thinking. And recently, my children, um, ages five and nine, have picked up on the importance of this work to me and actually started requesting it for bedtime reading. <laughs> uh, we're about 52 pages in, or 0.4% at this point. <laughs> I might finish by the time they're 10, or by the time my daughter's 10. So what, what's the big deal about these, about these books? What, what is it? I started asking myself uh, in getting ready for this, what is it that really draws me into this? And what is it, what, especially now, that, um, that inspires? That inspires uh, why is it so inspiring to me? And why has this, this series, set of books inspired an entire genre liter literature and a suite of movies that I think grows somewhere on the order of a billion dollars? So... I'll start with a little bit of background. You know, Tolkien himself, J.R.R. Tolkien, was a, was a professor. He was a professor of philology and linguistics by, uh, by day and an author by night. So this wasn't even his, this wasn't even his day job. He, he made his academic career as a translator and, and an interpreter of works of Old English from Beowulf um, and other, you know, other languages as well, Norse and, and Finnish, and etc. And he traced the development of those languages and left a, a fairly substantial academic legacy um, uh, as, uh, from that work. But in his spare time, beginning even before, before his, his work as an academic, he actually invented languages and stories and wrote songs and tales and poems. And all of this really began even before he served at the Battle of the Somme in the British Army. And it continued through the rest of his life. He even coined a term for this. He called it mythopoesis. And that is the invention of a comprehensive body of stories that traces the development of a culture. And this consumed his creative energies. And his gift to us is the world of Middle Earth. And, it is rank, and I rank it as one of the richest works of creation in human history. But the richness of that work reflects much more than an academic's understanding of, of, of how, how languages evolve over time or, or linguistic phylogenetics, if you will. It, re it reflects his own experiences of natural beauty, 
of human creativity and frailty, of sacrifice, suffering, and death, and perhaps most critically, his understanding of the will to power and the, and the desire of human beings to dominate each other. And his centerpiece, the work, the Lord of the Rings, it tells the story of a, of a, of a, of a hobbit, Frodo Baggins. He's a simple, uh, short-statured, rather furry-footed uh, little uh, uh, version of, of every man in a way. And his, you know, Frodo and his gardener, Sam Gamgee, and they, they embark on a quest to destroy this mysterious ring that promises its bearer dominion over the world and of its peoples. Cribbing it somewhat from Wagner, but, but this ring, it's so small a thing, as one of the members of the fellowship calls it. It gets its own power from the Dark Lord Sauron, an evil henchman of uh, Lucifer of a Lucifer figure who, who rules a land called Mordor in, in Middle-earth. And they are accompanied in the early stages of this journey by a gallery of now standard tropes in fantasy literature, a uh, multiracial fellowship of the ring, of man, men, elves, dwarves, hobbit, uh, hobbits, and uh, a wizard guardian angel figure named Gandalf. And the fellowship makes some progress, but it is eventually broken when one of its human members seizes, attempts to seize the ring for himself and uh, betrays Frodo to, to the ruin or to the dispersal of the fellowship. And the rest of the story then follows in various threads the remnants of the fellowship on their separate paths, and which later converge during the events that lead to the destruction of the ring itself. Now, the one ring that I mentioned in the reading confers to its bearer the ability to manipulate minds, coerce individuals and groups, and bend the wor world to the will of its bearer. Sound familiar? <laughs> All the while, the bearer in turn becomes a tool of the Dark Lord Sauron, who created this ring as a tool to channel his own will to become master of Middle-earth and to reshape it in his own image using tools all too familiar in today's political landscape. Lies, slander, distortions, deception, brainwashing, propaganda, cruelty, oppression, military power, and war. This ring can only be destroyed in the place where it was made, in an active volcano deep within the ruined land of Mordor. Seriously, you can't make this stuff up. Um, <clears throat> And thus ensues an epic journey to be undertaken by one brave enough to endure the perils of this path that is guarded by hardened warriors, uh, untold physical trials, and terrifying creatures. The cost of failure is nothing less than the world as they know it. Death is a near certainty, and the adversary is the very incarnation of toxic narcissism. Sounds like a party to me. Sign me up. Uh, no, but, but seriously, uh, in, 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 it, it really looks like a hopeless cause. And, and, and to, 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 do, to brave this would, is, is almost insanity. So in the face of this overwhelming will to power and this, the, the temptation to despair, Tolkien offers up a message of hope in the face of this seemingly impossible, these seemingly impossible odds. And he offers the possibility of salvation and redemption 
that's born out of Tolkien's own deeply Christian ethic. And in The Lord of the Rings, he gives us a guide to building communities that span race, gender, class, species, while ameliorating the ethic of dominance and coercion that has produced so many victims in our time online, uh, the Me Too movement, the, and the atrocious political partisan climate of our time. So who should undertake such a journey? Here is where the story actually becomes really interesting. And Tolkien picks not some brave warrior, no powerful wizard, some mysterious elf queen. In fact, all of those figures, uh, Aragorn, the, the, the future king, the, power, the Gandalf, the wizard, and Galadriel, the elf queen, all of these just outright refuse this thing, even when it's offered to them freely. Each of these figures, each of these personages is keenly aware of the destructive power of this ring in the hands of someone who has trained their mind to the domination of others, in Galadriel's words. Instead, the mission to destroy this ring falls to humble Frodo and Sam, the most unlikely creatures to take on such a role. Now, Tolkien could have continued this story as a conventional hero narrative. Frodo rises and gains strength of will, conquers all of the obstacles in front of him, and masters even the power of Sauron and the power and the, grasps the power of the ring, casts it into the fire, and then returns home in triumph to the adoration of a, of a united and liberated throng. <clears throat> but I think, perhaps, as a result of his experiences fighting in the trenches of World War I, Tolkien chooses a different path. And I think that is where his message shines out so powerfully today. Frodo's first major act as the ring bearer is not to utilize his newfound trinket to coerce the formation of a coalition to destroy the ring. Instead, we hear him say at the Council of Elrond, which is a multiracial gathering of elves, dwarves, humans, hobbits, and a wizard, uh, which can best, I think, be described as a badly chaired faculty meeting. <laughs> but he gives us the following description of his deliberation in all of this. He says, and Tolkien writes, a great dread fell upon him as if he was awaiting the pronouncement of some doom that he had long foreseen and vainly hoped might, might remain unspoken an overwhelming longing to rest and remain at peace by Bilbo's side in, in Rivendell. Bilbo's his uncle, by the way. Uh, filled all of his heart. At last, with an effort, he spoke and wondered to hear his own words as if some other will was using his small voice. I will take the ring, he said, though I do not know the way. I will take the ring but I do not know the way. So this, I think, is a startling gesture of bravery and humility wrapped into one and is issued by the most unlikely person in the room. I will take the ring. All right, he's volunteering for a perilous journey to almost certain death. Though I do not know the way. And with that, he is inviting others with superior knowledge to his to help him. So I detect no trace of malice, self-promotion, manipulation, guilting, or coercion in this. I think it is a simple and genuine admission of ignorance and an entreaty for fellowship. 
And I think Tolkien would probably agree with this, given that he is echoing, I think, in that, in that passage. He's echoing Elijah's experience of the still, small voice as the voice of God. I have come to see this ring as a symbol of our own individual desires to manipulate and control our fellow beings, our environment, to our own ends. A few weeks ago, we heard Reverend Maria contrast the original blessing with the conventional doctrine of original sin. And I got me thinking about this, and, and I came to the idea, I'm coming to this as a, as a biologist, as someone who studies evolution and the development of organisms over time, microorganisms in particular. Um, so I have a perspective on original sin that might be a little different from the conventional. This tendency towards coercion, domination, manipulation, competition, it may actually be hardwired into our DNA from about four and a half billion years of evolution in competition with our fellow creatures for scarce resources. It's the Darwinian ethos. Nature red in tooth and claw. So there it is. But it's this very urge that separates, that can separate us from what makes us fully human. Also evolved over millions of years, the need for community, for interaction, and for fellowship. These social qualities also evolved with us over millions of years. And in some ways, both of these traits, wrapped into one package, reached their terrifying apotheosis in the calamities of the first half of the 20th century which saw vast armies of social animals bonded to each other by kinship and by family, by friendship and tribe, engaged in wholesale slaughter to satisfy the wills of strutting kaisers, mad kings, and ill-tempered nationalists. Tolkien was intimately familiar with the, outcome of the, or the outcomes of the ability to dominate masses of people. Having witnessed and participated in that mass slaughter of human beings, and the waste of entire landscapes amidst the trenches of World War I. And in his letters, he writes, The most improper job of any man, even saints, who at any rate were at least unwilling to take it on, is bossing other men. Not one in a million is fit for at least of all those who seek the opportunity. And having witnessed the lights go out all over Europe, not once but twice in his lifetime, Tolkien gets this, and I think so must we. And the ring, like our own individualist's original sin, and I'll put that in quotes, is ours to destroy. And each of us carries some aspect of that ethic. So I believe that we must all take our own rings to Mordor. This move away from authoritarianism, from a coercive or a bullying mode of interaction, to a more communitarian, egalitarian, hobbit-like society. I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to second breakfast myself. Um, <clears throat> this, this requires each of us as individuals to assume that burden. I will take the ring. It is a call to individual action, to start that process, regardless of how it might finish. But when born solely by an individual, 
The ring is an unbearable burden. It consumes the wearer. Fortunately, this quest as a whole is not an individual act. Frodo himself immediately reaches out and builds a community, a fellowship, to help him. Just as we have our, all, our own rings to bear, Tolkien implores each of us to reach out and build our own fellowships. And then an echo of Jesus' own admonition to love your enemies and pray for them that persecute you. He implores us even to seek fellowship and aid from those in whom we least expect to find solace. I speak now of Gollum, that pitiful, menacing, vengeful ex-hobbit whose mind has been twisted and split into two distinct personalities by untold years of having possessed this ring. He follows Sam and Frodo, tracks them, and attempts to ambush them as they get ready to pass into Mordor and is captured by Sam and Frodo. And begging for mercy, he offers his service as a guide into Mordor. And Frodo and Sam, Frodo takes him up on it. Frodo is able to find empathy for Gollum, Smeagol, his alternate, relatively easily, as he too bears that same burden that ensnares Gollum. And in fact, Tolkien asks us, he implores us in a remarkable passage to find compassion for this ruined creature. And Gollum looked at them. Sam and Frodo are asleep. Gollum looked at them. A strange expression passed over his lean, hungry face. The gleam faded from his eyes, and they went dim and gray, old and tired. And then he came back, and slowly, putting out a trembling hand, very cautiously, he touched Frodo's knee. But almost the touch was a caress. For a fleeting moment, could one of the sleepers have seen him, they would have thought that they beheld an old, weary hobbit, shrunken by the years that had carried him far beyond his time, beyond friends and kin, and the fields and streams of yore, an old, starved, and pitiable thing. Now at that point, Sam wakes up. And he has a chance to interpret Gollum's gesture as something other than malice. But he blows it utterly, once again mistrusting Gollum and sending him back into the, more into the wilderness. Not literally, but he's still their guide for a while, but the metaphorical wilderness. Tolkien even grants in his commentary that things might have gone differently had Sam been able to find his own compassion for Gollum at that moment. So Sam in that moment fails. But he is not without empathy. He's not without, without good qualities. And in fact, it is he who serves as Tolkien's voice when he encounters an enemy, a dead enemy soldier along the way. And like a similar scene in All Quiet on the Western Front, wonders what the man's name was and where he came from and if he was really evil of heart or what lies or threats had led him on the long march from home and if he would really not rather have stayed there in peace. And indeed, it's Sam's love for Frodo and for the world that ends up saving them all. After Frodo and Sam survive Gollum's betrayal of them to a giant spy, evil spider, gotta read the books. 
It's really, really good. And they make their way through fire and peril into the chasm in which the ring must be cast. And as they prepare to enter Mordor, Sam offers up one of the great inspirational speeches of all time. This is one that I cling to even in the worst of times. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those are the stories that stayed with you. That meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back. Only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. That there is some good in this world and it's worth fighting for. And it is Sam who clings to hope when all is lost and carries Frodo up the slopes of Mount Doom where his, when his spiritual strength to resist that crushing force of the ring is exhausted. I may not be able to carry it for you, he says, but I can carry both it and you. And so Tolkien then finally subverts the hero narrative altogether. Frodo ultimately refuses to destroy the ring and claims it as his own. It is Gollum who bites the ring off an invisible Frodo's finger and then falls off the precipice into the fire, all the while gleefully clutching his precious. And thus, it's not the deed of an individual that ultimately destroys the ring. Instead, it's the small acts of compassion, the quest for justice, and the myriad invitations to fellowship along the way, especially the invitation to Gollum to serve as their guide, that set the stage for its almost accidental destruction. So I ask of you today, and I think this especially goes out to those of us who come from some degree of privilege. What ring will you bear to Mordor? To whom will you reach out for help on that journey? And perhaps, most cru crucially, who is your golem? Who is that twisted being in whom, when you look really hard, you can see a reflection of yourself and through that find compassion for them? And finally, in the days in which this evil seems to be plainly laid before us, among our brave company here are those who've struggled on their own long journeys into strange lands, those who've suffered at the hands of the wicked and depraved, and those who themselves have been wicked and depraved, those, of, those whose hopes have been crushed by those who would abuse power and yet seek more of the same. For those, I ask, for whom will you be Sam? For whom will you offer to carry up the mountain when they are tired and weary? 
So in conclusion, I believe that Tolkien would wish for us to offer up our compassion and empathy as a light to the world, just as Galadriel offers Frodo the, at their parting the, Frodo, the gift of the star of Elendil, a small light that shines brightly in the darkness. She gives the vial, the elves' most precious star, with the following wish. May it be a light to you in dark places when all other lights go out. Because hope remains while our company is true. Namarie ela sila lumen omentielvo. And that is elvish. For farewell, a star shines upon the hour of our meeting.